Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, a Radio Free Europe podcast on developments in Russia, its war against Ukraine, and its relations with the rest of the world. I'm Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL and author of The Week in Russia newsletter. This week's podcast is about Vladimir Putin's plan to serve at least one more term as Russian president, keeping him power at least until 2030, and about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. With Kyiv's counteroffensive faltering and future Western aid in doubt, what might 2024 bring when it comes to the war? And my guest today on The Week Ahead in Russia is Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and Eastern East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Thanks very much for joining me today, Mark. Always a pleasure, Steve. All right, great to speak to you again. Now, 2023 is not over yet. But this is the last edition of this podcast this year, and we're going to talk a little about 2024 and what it may bring in Russia and Ukraine, or for Russians and Ukrainians. Barring some major unexpected development, one thing it will bring for Russia is the start of another six years under Putin's rule. On December 8th, he confirmed that he plans to secure another term in March in an election, uh, March 15th to 17th is over three days, an election that sociologist Igor Aidman said would be, quote, a spectacle, spectacle, a farce, a rigged clown show, unquote. Last Thursday, uh, Putin held what was billed as a combination end-of-the-year press conference and Q&A session with the Russian people. This uh, closely choreographed event lasted just over four hours. And while there was quite a bit of talk about the war against Ukraine, uh, there was very little direct discussion of the election. Voting will be held March 15th to 17th, as I said, just three months from now. Mark, what was your impression of this performance by Putin? And what do you think the campaign or what passes for a campaign will look like? And another question is a bit broader, if you don't mind. What will you be watching for in terms of Russian foreign policy and domestic developments in 2024 once the vote, um, once this process is out of the way. Okay, well, let's start with this sort of town hall come press conference. I think the first point to make is just how astonishingly dull it was, even by the standards of these events, which tend, frankly, to be the sort of event that a nerd like myself will will watch out of duty for the odd little snippet of useful information, but not something that could ever be considered a pleasure. But as I said, even by those standards, it was dull. You know, we we had a handful of, of little talking points throwing in about how, of course, Odessa is a Russian city, a little testicular-based humour about uh, the, the Minister of Agriculture's eggs and such like. But even that was, was was pretty lame stuff. And in some ways, I can't help think that this may actually be the point. I'm, I'm sort of beginning to wonder if Putin's election campaign will precisely be strategic torpor to try and make the election the there is no alternative election. 
So instead of going through the, the rigmarole of pretending there is a degree of serious debate and disagreement, instead what we might get is just simply that sense of, look, this is a... This is an unnecessary duty. And in, in that respect, it's very much going back to Soviet times when you know, you'd have a ballot paper with one name on it, the party's chosen candidate. In theory, yes, you could actually scrub that out to register a protest vote if you were willing to take the risk. But nonetheless, the point was that there wasn't even the pretense that this was actually a pluralistic system. It was more that it was your patriotic duty to go in there and demonstrate your support for the Communist Party. In some ways, this is Putin going back to his, his pre-1991 roots, I think. And that sense that, look, the war aims are objective realities. They're not open for discussion or negotiation. The route that Russia must take is more or less set down by the inexorable opposition of the West and everything else. So I think this is it. It's, it's going to be a very, I think, sounds, it can sound like a contradiction in terms. It's probably going to be quite showy, but in many ways it'll be a low-key campaign in the sense of it'll all be about spectacle, nothing of even the pretense of substance, a very low-fibre campaign. But that said, I think what's interesting is even despite that, Nonetheless, some real issues did crop up in the course of this four hours and four minutes that even the Kremlin's most proficient spin managers couldn't actually exclude. You know, issues around the war. And even if it's often about essentially mercenaries saying, why aren't we getting the uh, perks that we were promised? But nonetheless, you know, clearly both war and also the failings of the state apparatus to deal with it the question of the overall sort of economy potentially overheating, you know, very much focused in on, on this issue of eggs, the, which is the price of eggs has skyrocketed uh, this year. Um, you know, so that even the best intent mean that whenever you have an election, whenever you actually even have even the sort of the faintest pretense of some kind of democratic process, like it or not, you have to open up some cracks in the system into which real issues uh, can can emerge. So, you know, again, I, I, th I think this is, this is Putin having to go through a legitimating ritual. He would rather not, just as he would clearly rather not have been at that uh, press conference. But nonetheless, he's got to go through with it. But so they're going to just try and make it as uh, matter of fact as possible. Going on to your second uh, question about what to be looking for after the election. Well, the obvious one is in terms of the potential for a new mobilization. Now, the official line is there's absolutely no need for one. We're getting 1,500 or so volunteers a day. So, you know, that's that's quite enough. Now, call me a cynic, but I'm not entirely convinced by the Kremlin's own numbers. Certainly, it's clear that there are some people within the military apparatus who actually do feel that a, a mobilization wave will be needed, even though it is incredibly unpopular. So although Putin gave in a slight little caveat, he said, you know, as things stand now, yeah. we have absolutely no need for a mobilization. I wouldn't be surprised if once the election is safely out of the way, we may see a, a summer mobilization wave. So that's that's one thing to be looking for. 
Secondly, very much we we need to be looking about the economy. Um, it's interesting that you know, you know the the central bank has has raised the interest rate to seventeen percent. Nabulina is kind of warning that high levels of government spending, which are essentially a product of both the war and the need to buy off certain sectors of the economy, are all contributing to inflationary pressures. And inflation is clearly something that is actually seriously worrying people. It affects their quality of life, their standard of living. And in fact, uh, Nabulina sort of drew this parallel. She said it was like trying to drive a, tr a car too fast. You know, for a while, it may well actually hit a really high speed, but this is not actually going to go anywhere well. So I think that's going to be crucial because you know, when it comes down to it, it's the economy that underpins everything else. And at the moment, in a way, Putin can get away with his war, even though it's not essentially an especially popular war, because things aren't that bad for most Russians. And in fact, we're seeing some kind of perverse positive effects. Military Keynesianism, this massive level of spending on the economy is actually leading to a artificial in some ways, but nonetheless, you know, a, a GDP increase. And likewise, because of the hunger for workers for the factories, but also hunger for volunteers for the military, it's actually impoverished parts of the Russian Federation that are disproportionately benefiting from the, the increased salaries being offered as a result. And uh, however grim it is to think of it, the money is paid out to families of those who fall in the war. So again, in, in this respect, it is kind of strangely redistributive. But the point is, again, that all depends on there being continued money available. And so we'll have to see how that follows. Last point I would actually say is, ironically, it could be a good thing as well as being potentially a bad thing. After the election, in some ways, I think Putin will be a little bit more uh, free to be flexible in terms of the war aims. I think, again, at the moment, he's having to tread this line between two uh, bullish a, a performance to dismay the technocrats and the more moderate figures, but on the other hand, shoring up his nationalist flank, especially while Igor Girkin, Strelkov, continues in his campaign to try and get on the, the presidential ticket, not that he will. Sorry, presidential ballot, mm -hmm. I said, not that he will. Um, after the election, in some ways, Putin may, may be more flexible. Now, in some ways, that is in, in ways of, sort of making things tougher, like mobilizing troops. But it also means that if, and I, I see no signs of this, so you know, treat this with enormous caveats, but if circumstances were such that he felt that he had to begin to tiptoe towards some kind of negotiations, he might be in a position to be a little bit more flexible because, again, he doesn't have to worry so much about even the pretense of a ballot. Absolutely. Um, well, thanks for that, Mark. I guess I, I just wanted to follow up with another question uh, that I think will sort of also involve what we're going to talk about uh, a little later. Um, you know, I, Putin's, Putin's um, press conference and, and Q&A at Town Hall uh, I definitely noticed that there was almost no talk at all about the election. I think there were, as far as I could see, there were only two mentions of it even. Um, one where somebody said, thank you, thank you for running. And the other at the very beginning when I guess the, the questioner the or the moderator said, um, you know, you're, you're running uh, for president 
and what you know what do you think is what are the main things that Russia you know needs and he said sovereignty um but it, there wasn't even like uh, I, as far as i saw there wasn't a question of you know why did you decide to run you know, what what are you going to do um uh, on the other hand there was quite a bit of talk about the war um and including um mainly, and it almost seemed like the, the press conference could have ended there near the very beginning when he said, when will there be peace? There'll be peace when we achieve our goals. Um, so obviously that's a message to, you know, to the West and Ukraine, uh, Ukraine and the West, in, in addition to you know, a message to the Russian people. But I had a, a question about why, essentially, why do you think he said that? Um, I mean, polls are showing that people want peace even if russians in, in general want you know peace if even if they don't want any concessions um but you mentioned the you know the nationalists and girkin but wh why do you think putin would um say that about the goals uh which seem to be even even with the uncertainty over um you know over aid to ukraine you know, I don't think there's a lot of talk about those goals being achievable anytime soon. Uh, so why wouldn't he throw a bone to Russians who hope for peace and say something a little less dramatic? I think on that specific point, it's about not opening up, again, scope for discussion. If you just simply say, look, we've, we've given our objectives. I mean, it's interesting that he, he pulled out this whole denazification issue. Yeah which actually had to a large extent dropped out of public narratives because it is both ridiculous and unquantifiable. But nonetheless, you know, even that he, he threw out. Again, I think he sort of presented this maximalist line, probably because he does feel a bit more confident at the moment because of how the war's gone, the current state of the aid deb debates and such like. But also it, it effectively draws a line. It says, we have objectives, we still have those objectives, we will not bend until those objectives are met. If you started to say, oh, well, there is some scope for negotiation, we're always happy to talk, then in a way you are inviting some kind of debate as to what therefore might be acceptable levels of victory, shall we say. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, again, it's him trying to actually rule out the most potentially problematic topics from 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 debate because again this does link into this whole business about why was there no talk about the elections except as you say there was this particularly sycophantic young reporter from the russian far east who not only sort of thanked him for standing but, but saying you know, of course we're all supporting you because we can't even remember a time when you weren't leader and that sadly is true mm -hmm. of a certain proportion of, of of russians but again it's almost like that try, trying to you know, going back to this business of there is no alternative um, if you ask the question, why do you run, which is again a classic question in real democracies, yeah. because one, one wants to know why is this particular individual wanting to elevate themselves to, to leadership of the nation or whatever, then you open up the, the implicit possibility of not running. And I mean, although clearly when he actually was asked in that sort of rather ham-fisted, clearly theatrical moment, um, at the medal ceremony by a decorated lieutenant colonel, and he just said, well, I've been thinking about it, but yes, I'm, I am going to run. But you might say, as soon as he makes that decision, you really, again, you want to close this issue down. You don't want to make it about 
this is how I am trying to appeal to the electorate in the hope of getting their mandate. You're more or less essentially trying to convey the, the, the sense that there is no question about the mandate because these are, these are the times and this is the individual. So again, I mean, I think that this is one, one of the sort of ways in which no doubt, if not Putin, at least his political technologists must be cursing the fact that they do need to go through this whole sort of ritual. And ironically enough, they're probably feeling very jealous of the fact that Zelensky is in a position where he can postpone his elections. Um, you know, but basically they are having to basically hold an election, which as far as possible is not an election. Yes, thanks. And, and that does that kind of uh, plays into what you what you said uh, before about, you know, this is it's just kind of an assumption that that he's you know, this is the way it is uh, with the war and, and with the, you know, what they're calling an election. Uh, no question. And, and I guess that's what the campaign will look like, as you said, pomp. But, you know, no kind of it's 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 all leading towards a, a completely uh, foregone conclusion. All right, thanks. And let's focus a little more um, on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how things may go uh, with that in 2024. Um, to keep things a little bit short, I'll just say that the counteroffensive Ukraine uh, launched uh, in June has made uh, little progress. Um, you know, some newspapers are calling it failed. Um, it's certainly not currently threatening Russia's hold on the strip of land leading from the Russian border in the Donbass to the isthmus that links mainland Ukraine to Crimea, which was sort of the main goal um, when that was launched. Uh, and as for Western weapons and financial support for Ukraine, uh, Viktor Orban of Hungary is blocking a 50 billion euro package from the EU and more than $60 billion worth of aid, including about $50 billion, I believe, uh, in weapons and military support, has been stymied so far in the, United, in the U.S. Congress. Mark, what do you think? Uh, I mean, there's, there's still efforts at a deal um, on that that's linked to the U.S. border with Mexico. They're still working on that uh, in the Senate, um, but it's unclear whether they'll come up with a deal before Christmas and, and when if 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 ever uh, you know it will be adopted and there'll be additional aid to ukraine under that under that package so mark what what do you think if a substantial amount of aid does not come through is 2024 going to bring russia big gains in the war how might things look uh in 6 months or or in a year i think we have to recognize that russia is already pretty well placed for 2024 and uh, not least in the provision of ammunition. The Russian economy has moved into a sort of full full wartime mode. They've also got support from North Korea, Iran and such like. Whereas on the whole, the Western initiatives to ramp up their own production really are only going to come into play towards the end of next year. They managed to fortify their their. Um, situation in Ukraine. They've learned some lessons in their own way about how to actually fight this war, and particularly the importance of drones and electronic warfare and the like. So actually, the Russians are in a, in a fairly good position, regardless, frankly, of, of whatever the, the aid situation is. That said, though, I can't really see them being in the position to launch major offensive operations 
in in this coming year. I mean, they 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 have taken heavy casualties, and it's not just simply a question of whether or not they they can recruit more warm bodies. In some ways, they're facing the same challenge that the Ukrainians did. Is actually, if you want to be able to not just puncture the enemy's defences, but then exploit that fully. That basically requires competent combined arms operations and enough protected firepower in terms of tanks and such like. And, you know, the, the Russians are not necessarily in, in that great a position in that. So I think in any case, this, this coming year, whatever the strategies that the two sides adopt is probably going to be one in which we're going to see a kind of I mean, there's a lot of debate about this word stalemate, but I think we have to recognize the point about stalemates is stalemates get broken. Um, you know, so it, it will be a fairly kind of dynamic on pass. There will be lots of individual local offensives, you know, as we're seeing, for example, in Avdivka, and conversely with the Ukrainians trying to push across the Dnieper River. But nothing that is likely to have a kind of dramatic effect. I, I, I think it's unlikely. I mean, it's possible. But unlikely that we're going to see anything like the kind of Kharkiv breakthrough. So it's it's going to be a kind of a year of on both sides, kind of building, making the best of their positions and so forth. And in that context, obviously, you know, Ukraine fatigue, we have to recognize it is a real thing in the West. It's not dominant in the main it but it's it's there's no point in trying to pretend that it's not there i mean I, unfortunately we do have a tendency from certain leaders to just try and sort of brush it away i think we have to recognize it and contend with it so in that context one of the challenges for the ukrainians is not going to be not just the the, the battlefield it's going to be the political battlefield behind their lines in in the west there will be a greater tendency, as we've seen already, for Ukraine aid to be used as a bargaining chip in both the United States and the EU. Because this is what's happening. I mean, actually, when it comes down to it, you know, is it that Senate has been has demonstrated that it's thoroughly opposed to providing aid for Ukraine? No, not at all. There are some individuals, absolutely, but, but what actually allowed them to carry the day is because this was a chance to give Joe Biden a bloody nose, and this is a chance to jump on the populist line about the, the mortal threat coming from the Mexican border. Likewise, you know, Viktor Orban is not interested in furthering Putin's goals so much as furthering Viktor Orban's goals, and obviously often that is to Putin's great convenience. But just as we saw with the whole issue of the decision to, uh, to open up accession talks with Ukraine, well, in that case, actually, it's just Viktor Orban holding the European Union to ransom. Odds are the same is going to happen again. So I think that we should, we should see these not as absolute roadblocks, but as speed bumps. Mm. They're, they're inconvenient, they slow down the process, but I think in both cases, the aid packages, possibly modified, possibly slightly smaller, but essentially these aid packages will come. Whether the Americans will be able to get their act together to get this done before the new year, I'm not convinced. Fortunately, in the case of the European aid, it's actually, it is future aid. So there is, there, there is stuff in, in the pipeline just as we see stuff in the pipeline in terms of military kit, you know, whether it's the ATACMS missiles, F-16 jets, and so forth. But this is something that we're going to have to watch, though, is as the 
the urgency, the excitement, the political priority of Ukraine declines, as it has to fight for airtime with what's going on in the Middle East, for example, or whatever other crises might might arise, then the the, the capacity of certain forces precisely to to use it as, as a tool for domestic, political or international negotiations is going to become all the greater. And this is why, and this is a very, very long, long-winded answer, I apologise, um, but the point is, therefore, it's actually all going to be about stamina. I mean, the, the odds seem to be, and certainly this is people who follow the military side of it much more closely than me seem to think, is that 2025, is essentially likely at this rate to be the crucial year in terms of the military side of the of the conflict. And that in turn will be crucial for any kind of potential political negotiations. So if we're thinking about that, if we're thinking about, you might say 2025 as being something to get through and through which to be able to provide Ukraine with the assistance it needs to build itself up, in terms of militarily, in terms of its domestic economy, its resilience and such like. The question will be about the stamina everyone has, the, you know, the, the Ukrainians' capacity to maintain, accept the, the losses, the terrible losses that it's suffering, and yet think forward and, and be optimistic about the future. Well, I think one can be fairly positive about that. And likewise, the stamina in the West to continue what are, after all, huge amounts of, of money flows, and yet to accept that that's something that, that the price that has to be paid in order for there to be some kind of a positive resolution a year plus down the line. So that's, that's a, again, it's not a very uplifting thought for 2024. I will readily grant that. But to be perfectly honest, I, I think that it's, one of the things we have to acknowledge is that a failure of Western and maybe also Ukrainian strategy and planning was precisely a, a desperation for some kind of quick resolution. And as a result, uh, an over-optimistic assumption that somehow Ukrainian elan and Western military technology would, would magically resolve the issue. Whereas we forgot that, unfortunately, in this, the Russians got a vote, too. OK, well, thanks very much. You, you apologized for a long winded uh, answer, but uh, certainly no need uh, for an apology. It's a very, um, very enlightening and comprehensive answer, I think. Um, and uh, uh, so thanks very much for that. Um, you know, as you say, well, so 2024, essentially, um, no resolution, apparently, which in some ways could be good. I mean, it's hard to argue that in, in some ways not. Um, but um, thanks very much for, for that uh, for that perspective. Um, and we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, thanks for joining me, Mark, as always. A pleasure and happy new year to you and all your listeners. All right. Thank you. Uh, once again, I've been speaking to Mark Galliotti, an analyst of Russian politics, an honorary professor at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies in London, and the author of several books, including We Need to Talk About Putin, The Weaponization of Everything, and Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And my name is Steve Gutterman, editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at RFERL. This has been The Week Ahead in Russia. 
Our theme music is Nyestrelai, or Don't Shoot, a song from the early 1980s by Yuri Shevchuk and DDT. Please be sure to check out my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which covers the latest developments in Russian politics and society, as well as Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Subscribe by visiting www.rferl.org.